Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandy Higa, and today is Thursday, March 9th, 2023. Joining us this week on the One O'ahu Podcast with Mayor Rick Blangiardi is the man himself. Mayor Rick, welcome. Good morning, Brandy. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> and Mayor, we have a special guest yeah, with us today. Joining us is the director of your Department of Budget and Fiscal Services, Andy Koano. Hey, Andy. Good morning, Brandy. Great well, to have you here. Well, he's really the director for the whole city here. Pretty you much. Know, I, I don't consider him my personal guy, although we rely on him personally a whole lot. And we relied on him a lot last week as we announced yeah. the operating budget, CIP budget for the next fiscal year. Andy, let's start with the operating budget. So $3.4 billion where are those larger chunks allocated? Well, probably the largest chunk is going to go to um, the uh, payment of employee benefits. So we're talking about uh, the retirement benefits, um, current health benefits, and then future health benefits for retired employees, along with um, FICA and some other uh, benefit line items. But we're talking about um, approximately $780 million in that category. Uh, after that, there's a debt service at about $660 million uh, at about um, 18%. And then right after that, we have um, what we set aside for public safety. So that's fire, police, uh, water safety, and emergency services. And that, uh, that number is uh, close to um, $500, $500 million. And Mayor, how is this reflective of the priorities that you had coming in? Well, it speaks to everything that we're focused on with respect to affordable housing and our, you know, our people and safety, public safety. So uh, with respect to this year's increase over last year, there's about $200 million in our operating, and a large percentage of that goes to uh, compensation, paying off retirement benefits, uh, and, you know, exactly what I'm saying. We're focused on people. We're focused on people internally, people who work for the city, as well as externally and what we're doing uh, in the community. And that's reflective in our capital budget as well. But it's uh, uh, we a lot of thought went into this strategically. We own this budget. This budget is reflective of our priorities. And at this point in time, the dominant priorities are, as I've said, it really has to do with people, affordable housing and, and safety. And they're all in the same water. There's not a one, two, three. They're all out there working on all of that. Uh, yeah, you did mention your capital budget, $1.09 billion. I know land acquisition to add to the city's affordable housing portfolio um, was included. How much are we talking about here, and how did we come up with that amount? Uh, we came up with $100 million, and we, we got to that amount by looking at opportunities we have in front of us to acquire properties for more um, affordable housing units. So $100 million, it's, it's, um, the terms are quite flexible. We can do mixed uh, income mixed use housing, uh, and uh, we look forward to um, you know adding to the inventory to keep people housed on this island. You know, this is really our third budget that we've done together. The first one, fiscal twenty two, was really just tightening up uh, the sixty days that we were given. Uh, that was reflective of the prior administrations, and not only that, it was modeled after two thousand one. Last year's twenty three budget was beginning to reflect our priorities. This one in 24 really does that. So in that regard, when it comes to capital, this is the, this is the city now exercising our opportunity, our responsibility on what it is we're going to do specifically on affordable housing. And so we didn't have this kind of money in there a year ago. We're putting it in now because we want to be more in charge. I mean, as we've looked at, you know, the challenge on affordable housing, we pretty much have asked ourselves three questions. First of all, what is the role of the city? 
How do we define that role so we can execute? You have to have role clarity. And that was pretty ambiguous coming in based on how things were going. And quite honestly, uh, the city had a housing department comprised of two people one, and, and spent most of his time on the homeless situation. So understanding our role and seeing the opportunities within that role, as Andy just said. Then the other part is that we want to understand what was getting in the way over the past 50 years. I mean, this housing crisis has been talked about for a long time. And if that's the case, what have been the problems or the obstacles for us uh, that we would try to understand the problem so we could develop the right solution? And the last thing was, you know, we asked ourselves, so then what are we going to do about it? This $100 million is part of what we're going to do about it. What were some other highlights included in that CIP? Well, obviously, uh, we have to continue our capital spend on our consent decree projects for wastewater and solid waste. So we set aside approximately $561 million for um, uh, our envir environmental services. Uh, and then, um, you know, we have monies after that spread across, again, public safety, uh, we have we have the housing spend. We're spending a little more on highways and streets this year. We're working on not only um, rehabilitation all the way down to the um, you know base levels of our roads, but we're looking at uh, road resurfacing as well. The resurfacing piece, uh, where we skim off the first two inches of the roadway, is actually in the um, and replace it is actually in the operating budget. But in the CIP budget, we set aside a bulk fund of about thirty-three million dollars for um, road replacement, road rehabilitation. And, and we're gonna do that throughout the island where it's needed the most. Yeah, and the truth is that could even be a larger budget. We have more, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be done there. And I think that's one of those things that uh, just gets done on an annual basis. I do like this year's numbers though with respect to that because it represents a significant increase um, in, our, in our, our determination to, again, it's, everything we do is about serving the people, but a priority, but I, I can tell you, Fixing roads in some of the cases where it's really needed is really, truly needed. Yeah. yeah. Our property owners got a dose of good news last yeah. week. Can you talk about the one-time tax credit? Yeah, you know, we've, we've gone through a period of time, two years actually, where we've had, you know, significant increases in the um, valuation of our um, properties, especially in residential. And lots of residents have been calling in. There's a lot of uncertainty out there, you know, be, beyond just uh, real property tax. They're, they're just trying to live day to day. You know, there's inflation they're dealing with. Um, there's just a lot of unknowns. So we listened to them and um, we, there was a lot of give and take, you know, across all agencies. And we made a commitment to set aside some of our um, funding to um, return some of the revenue back to, um, to our residents that own homes. So there's about 151,700 homes with the homeowner ex exemption. And we decided that what would make the most sense to provide relief quickly would be to provide a one-time credit back to homeowners with a homeowner exemption. Uh, we came up with $300 because it felt like the right amount, uh, it is equivalent to receiving an additional one-time homeowner's exemption of $86,000, excuse me. And um, so, so the typical homeowner usually gets a $100,000 homeowner exemption. For next year, they'll receive an equivalent homeowner's exemption of $186,000. And we felt that um, it would benefit homeowners, especially those that are um, 
more in need. You know, those uh, homeowners that have lower valued homes who are struggling to get by day, day by day. And we, we thought that providing um, a credit that would be the same across the board would, would benefit the homeowners that, um, that, it, that are in need yeah, much more than ones that are wealthy with high value properties. Yeah, and to that end, uh, I mean, the, um, the, the brilliance of this and, and strategy and the discipline of it was to, to not do it where, you know, the higher the, the valuation of the properties and have this sort of ascending scale by keeping it flat, actually from an equity standpoint, benefits people in um, the situations that Andy just talked about who have homes that are valued less lesser amounts, but still yet this was a significant increase. So getting an $86,000 exemption would be significant in many cases. And, and then it just it just stays that way. So if somebody has a property worth two million dollars, you know maybe just went up four hundred thousand. You know they like that asset, they like that appreciation. Um, Eighty six thousand may not seem like a whole lot of three hundred dollars to them, but on, on other levels of home ownership, where the appreciation was not so great or, or lesser valued homes, it's really significant for those people. And that's what we wanted to do, was to through this. Um, through this effort here was to really provide relief because this was an aberration. You know, historically, uh, retail sales of real estate um, has never really exceeded $10 billion before. In fact, on average, it's been pretty much about $7 million. It's had some higher points, but never really gone over $10 billion. Last year, it went to $12.4 billion. That just drove everything up dramatically. And while people like to know that their houses appreciate in value like that if they're a homeowner, as Andy just said, nearly 152,000 people have home exemptions. It also creates a financial payment or a financial burden, if you will, especially as you go down the, lo the lower ends of it. So this is, I think, it's $45.5 million, not a small amount of money. We put a lot of thought into this as to how to best to do it. I thought that Andy's recommendation to keep it even all the way across the board from an equity standpoint, actually has the highest and best impact. I'm very proud of this and very grateful. A lot of time went into it. It's a significant, that's what I asked. This is historic. The city's done it once before, and the amount was $200. So to do a $300 one uh, in this day and age uh, is, um, you know, again, manifesting an $86,000 exemption is, is not insignificant. You know, and the other thing I'm proud of is that all, all of our agencies pitched in, you know, as I said earlier, there was give and take. All of the agencies put in their requests above. Um, we, we set a budget ceiling by city agency, and we asked the agencies to stay within that, that ceiling. Well, most of them have needs because we have a lot of deferred maintenance that um, wasn't addressed earlier uh, on a, in a timely manner, and then they have staffing needs that go above and beyond you know, the current uh, staff levels they have in their org charts. Uh, we were not able to give them everything that they wanted in most cases, but they got a nice increase to address areas of need throughout the city. And um, you know, everyone pitched in, and I, I do believe everyone feels good about giving back uh, in an equitable manner. Uh, some relief, uh, even though it's just one year, it's some relief. Uh, we, um, you know, in addition to FY24, when the bills go out, we have other um, uh, actual actual tax bills that we're looking at to to look at the homeowner's exemption for the longer term, you know, whether or not 100000 for, um, the, you know, the general homeowner and then 140000 for homeowners over 
uh, 65 years of age is enough. So we're, we're gonna look at that going forward. But uh, if we implement an increase to the homeowner's exemption going forward, it'll probably go in effect fiscal 25. So we thought that doing the credit, making it one time, provides immediate relief, has a positive impact, and will help, again, those in need to get through tough times. Right. You know, in a broader context, if I could just add one last note on this, then we can move on. You know, we talk a lot about the lack of affordable housing, and we'll be able to talk about that in the initiatives we're making. But this is also about cost of living issues and understanding that, um, you know, we're all, the whole country right now is in an inflationary cycle of nearly 7%. Uh, and that's also true here in Hawaii. But we're trying to take a broader look at our own residents and trying to help them as much as possible. So uh, in taking a longer term look at um, home exemptions, I think is a smart thing to do in, in face of the fact that um, most of these properties that have just been assessed so highly aren't going to come way down. It's not like it's going to be that mercurial. They're going to pretty much hold there. So we want to look at that. That's a benefit for anybody owning a home. Uh, it's just how do they handle that 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 new cost, if you will. We did not change the tax base. We're going to keep the tax rate the same. That's not our call. It's the council's, but it's been strongly re recommended. But at the end of the day, we're trying to take even a beyond this year look at, because people talk about affordability, the price of paradise, uh, or being priced out of paradise. We're trying to be as sensitive where we can possibly be that way uh, as a city administration. Yeah, I kind of want to expand on that. Um, maybe this is for Andy, but you talked about that tax rate. So what's the process there? Why can't it be decreased? Well, the tax rates are typically proposed by the executive branch, so the mayor's uh, cabinet uh, and team. Uh, typically, it goes through um, a legislative process where council members review you know, the calculated uh, tax revenue amount uh, for the upcoming fiscal year. Council members approve tax rate changes. Um, we, we do not. We can propose mm -hmm. changes in tax rates and, and the credit mm -hmm. for what it's worth, but the council members at the end of the day have to approve it through the legislative process. So the bill goes through three readings. Uh, we have a lot of discussion. We get public input because it's done in a public forum, uh, and the readings end up with you know, the goal is to, after third reading, uh, adopt a bill mm -hmm. that both the legislative and executive branch are happy with, and uh, that comes about typically in the early June time frame every year. You know, I made it a real point of saying we weren't going to raise property taxes, and I don't want to do that just because we f suddenly ran into an inflationary cycle and whatever. The timing is not right in this COVID and post-COVID environment and all of the other impacts, and add to that just the general cost of living here in Hawaii. Remember, we're talking about now property taxes, but we get taxed on a lot of other things. You know, consider paying taxes on food and other p products that people buy that otherwise, they don't, and we import 98% of our food, and when you get done with that and the charges for it, I mean, I was just shopping this weekend in the, in, in the, in the supermarket, and eggs were like six bucks or whatever a dozen. And I went, whoa, I haven't bought eggs in a while, but I don't remember paying $6 a dozen. And I looked around to see if there were cheaper eggs, and that was about it. You know, someone went up. So, uh, and I'm, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of, so we're trying to stay sensitive to that on, a, on, a, on, on that macro level. And um, it just doesn't feel right to simply, to me, it seems too simplistic because the city get, derives most of its money through property taxes. Let's just increase the property tax. So you try to put that through. It, it doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. It's not anything we really are entertained doing. And keep in mind that in this past year, we were able to get the TAT up approved, and, and that's going to provide us significant money based on tourist spending, if you will. And so we, you know, there's already, there's already that, that kind of increase. 
So the 151,000, 152,000 um, who have exemptions maybe already in our system, they are eligible for this tax credit? They will all get this tax credit? How does that work? Yes, yeah, so when we do the um, valuation process each year uh, and when we send out the notices of assessed valuation, typically that process includes um, identifying the actual homeowners with the exemption because uh, we, act we actually get uh, complete factors and update factors to compute the tax at that point. So we know right now how many exemptions we have in place. That information gets passed to Treasury and our Treasury Department um, will use the information in its system to invoice or bill taxpayers uh, next year. So it's, it's based on the valuation process and assessment that we go through uh, each fiscal year. So Brandon, if you don't mind, let me ask Andy a question on here because I think it. part of what we're doing is trying to educate our public and help them. Let's say my house didn't go up 86,000. Let's say my house went up 50,000. What's my experience with this tax assessment? Actually, if your house only went up $50,000 in assessed value, you, you have, you'll receive a one-time benefit in excess of the increase of your valuation. So you're going to pay less tax. You're going to pay less tax uh, by more than the $50,000 that you brought up that your uh, value increased. Right. Um, the only thing that we have to be aware of is that um, there's a minimum tax that has to be paid per property. And that minimum tax is $300. So as long as your bill doesn't go below $300 after the credit, you get the full benefit and more. Okay, good. So I just want to get that clarification out there because it's a little bit, you know, we're doing something that's not the usual it's, thing. Yeah, we don't right? do it all the time. And yeah. and um, and I think there could be some confusion out there. I mean, it's not, it's really it's it's good news for everybody. You just want to, um, on people on the lower end of the spectrum, try to give them a better understanding of what it means for them. Yeah, definitely. One of the questions that uh, came up last week in that budget press conference had to do with regional infrastructure and the status of TOD. Is there a point when maybe we'll see a great deal of progress? Well, I don't have a crystal ball on saying exactly when that date's going to be. I'd like to, but you know, this is all part of that stimulus. You know, we are going to begin operating the rail this summer, and we know that you know, as I said last week, once that is in place and you start to do it, and it begins to manifest itself as we get further and further. Um, into the urban core, housing will come up in and around that. And we want to be, in, in, if you will, partners in that development. Uh, and that's what this regional infrastructure is about. Yeah, and our managing director put in, I believe, $6 million, Six million. for regional projects. So he's looking at three regions, uh, East Kapolei, He's looking at Halava nearby the stadium, mm -hmm. and then Ivali and Kapalama. Right. So we were putting in $2 million each for each of those regions to work with the state and other non-governmental um, organizations like, like Bishop Estate, Castle and Cook, some of the larger um, landowners, uh, to come up with a plan uh, and design uh, for um, infrastructure that can support increased um, housing units. Yeah, you know, I've so said, I'm sorry. No, no go no, ahead. I've said over and over again, the rail project, and that, these are not my words. This was from the time that it was voted on and uh, by design, irrespective of all that's taken place since then. This is a transformative civil works project and will bring with it lots of stuff and so now we're at a stage where we're getting close to getting into operations remember i'm the fourth mayor to touch this it goes back you know almost 20 years ago when everything began um that this kind of this from a phasing in standpoint this is a kind of thinking and strategy you begin to employ now as it becomes reality 
to make these kinds of investments because it lends itself to uh, all kinds of possibilities. But you've got to start in the early stages. Mm-hmm. And it, it definitely helps to have a, have a solid plan because these projects will be multi-year projects. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual physical completion of the projects could happen further down the line. We're talking, you know, 2028, 2029, 2030, that kind of time frame. But, uh, you, you know, if we don't set the plan and design right, you're going to have all kinds of problems, and we, we want to get things right the first time. One of the locations you did mention was Halava. And, Mayor, my question for you, I guess you have so many close ties to that stadium area. Do. What does success look like for you in that area? You know, I, um, I'm i going to be the contrarian here on record. I mean, I, I, I just don't think the Halava site for a stadium, while it served us well all those many years with Aloha Stadium, looking at what they have planned in the development of that 98-acre parcel and allocating some 78 to residential and retail really I think is somewhat confining on 20 20 plus acres if you will for the stadium and what that represents for parking and everything else that goes on there I I've been a proponent of saying I don't understand why we wouldn't be talking about building it in West Oahu when you look at the shift of the population I'm talking about on the West Oahu campus now which has the acreage to accommodate that including parking and now we'll have access with the rail but if you look at the shift in population that's out there already on the west side, I mean, it, it would be a real benefit there. It's not that much further, not that much further to go from Hoava to Kapolei uh, if you're going to drive to the stadium as well. And it just seems like they're going to try to crowd this multi, um, this multiplex, if you will. It's really less of a football stadium and more of a multi-purpose venue uh, into that to create that combine. And that, that to me, in and of itself, uh, and it's still... An, still not even determine when it's going to be. You know, we have a lot of infrastructure issues in that area. Right now, it's a big parking lot with pretty much um, infrastructure that services the bathrooms and the drinking fountains and a, few, a little bit more in Aloha State. That, that, that's a massive deal. And that's, and that's before we even talk about the demolition of existing infrastructure in Aloha Stadium and how long that might take. So I, I just, I don't understand why. I remember very well not only playing and coaching in the old stadium, when Governor Burns talked about Halava for Aloha Stadium, we thought, oh my God, that's so far away. I know that sounds kind of crazy today, uh, but it seemed that way. Honestly, the distance between Halava and Kapolei and what that would afford that campus, that section of the island, and for that matter, the fan experience. I, I, I'm really bothered by the fact that they're gonna put this sort of entertainment venue out there. I'm not even gonna call it a football stadium an entertainment venue out there. It doesn't even allow for tailgating, which has always been a ritual, not only here in Hawaii, across the country, in every major venue, college football and whatever. It's, to me, it's, it's just, I feel strongly about that. And I, I don't have a voice in this, but if I were in charge of it, that's what I would be recommending doing. And again, it only seems like a trek if you live in Manoa to go to West Oahu, but all the people who live out there, if attendance has been an issue, Look at the opportunity and what that could represent for all those people and more people to come. If you look at the future planning of what's what's set out there for West Oahu, I, I just um, I just don't understand it. So that's how I feel about that. So Andy, when it comes to this budget, what happens now? I know you have budget hearings for the next however many days, however many weeks with city council, but how does that process work and what, what's the timeline for this? So it's a, it's a three-month timeline. So we go through uh, department budget briefings. So one by one, all of the city's agencies or departments present their budget. You know, they're advocating for their uh, budget decisions and uh, requests. So they do it in front of council. It's in a public forum. Uh, so typically what happens is we go through three readings. 
the first reading is perfunctory. You know, it's, it's essentially just calling out the bill. Uh, there may be a few questions asked to clarify the bill, uh, what the bill is uh, asking for, the purpose of the bill. Uh, but generally, first reading gets passed. It's that second building up to the second reading where council members submit questions. They, they put in council ads where they, they add additional budget line items from time to time. And typically, the second reading requires what they call a council draft one. So they actually take mayor's proposal and they, they come back with a, with a modified um, draft of the bill, you know, the operating and the CIP budget bill. And we review the modified draft with uh, the council members and we go back into session again. We, you know, we ask questions, you know, uh, they, ask, they also ask questions. And uh, there's, there's public input. And uh, we, we have meetings sometimes, you know, behind the scenes to discuss the merits of a council ad or, or the merits of a budget ask that one of our agencies put in that they've taken away. And it goes back and forth. And then we go, as we build to the third reading, typically there's a council draft two that, that comes into play. And uh, the council draft two typically is the near final bill that we, we adopt. Uh, and that process typically happens uh, you know, in, in the May timeframe. Uh, and then come early June is when we do the third reading to approve the budget. So typically it's a C, they call it CD2, Council Draft 2. And typically, there, more times than not, there's usually a floor draft as well where a council member walks a, another uh, further updated version of the bills as a, as a floor draft and uh, that gets reviewed at third reading, reviewed and discussed. So it's yeah. a lengthy process, it's about three months. I want to give Andy some credit here. Over the course of the last two years in, in the development of really the balancing of fiscal year 22 and last year's fiscal 23 uh, budgets, uh, he was able to work very effectively with the council and in fact I believe both budgets were approved unanimously and we've had, and that's always a good sign, uh, and hopefully that'll be the same case this year. And it's a lot of you know give and take back and forth. But I think more than anything, it's really about creating an understanding and having an appreciation of understanding our priorities and why we're, we're, we're doing things the way we are and then gaining their support. So I feel pretty confident. I thought that this year's budget, as I said earlier, we had the right focus. It reflects our priorities. And under the circumstances, pretty much hard to argue with our priorities what we want to get done and and you know again the whole the budget process was based on mayor's priorities and stra strategy and priorities so we shared mayor's priorities for next year with all agencies the agencies were asked to come up with their own department strategy and priorities and most of them did a very good job and uh, i think bottom up top down uh, there's alignment uh, and as mayor mentioned this is the second go around for us this is our budget that, that was proposed and we feel good about it. That's excellent that that uh, relationship with council has been built. Are you able to gauge at this point kind of where you might face a little bit of questions or um, you know on this year's operating? I NCAP? think it's, it's hard to tell but uh, so I did an administrative overview this morning and a lot of questions were on two, two areas. One was the credit, the one-time credit because they're trying to understand how it came about. Why did we select a credit over a refund? Uh, versus, you know, a um, increase in exemption that would be more of a permanent change. Uh, they wanted to know why. Why is three hundred dollars a good number? So we, you know, we explained a lot of what we talked about earlier. Three hundred dollars uh, equates for each uh, homeowner to an additional 
$86,000 exemption. It, we, we wanted it to be significant. Uh, the credit was put in place because it's something that we could do through the system to impact uh, the taxpayer immediately. So the credit would be directly offset against the real property tax bills that go out in July. Uh, so homeowners with homeowner exemptions get the benefit immediately. And what we're going to try to do is take the entire deduction, if we can, on that first bill. Uh, so, so taxpayers get more immediate relief. Um, so that was discussed, and then our leverage. Uh, there was some discussion on uh, our, you know, if we're concerned about um, our, our bond uh, debt leverage uh, or bond debt level causing us to be highly leveraged. And I said, so I explained to him, I said, you know, the rating agencies are comparing us against our peer against peer governmental units that are rated at the same level. So Moody's uh, rated us at um, AA1, uh, and uh, they changed their methodology. Their, their rating methodology is currently much more quantitative in nature and focuses a lot on debt level. And they felt that we had too much relative to the peers. That's why they dropped us down. What's upsetting about that is we're, we're in better shape today than we were a year ago or two years ago. And uh, we, um, our, our debt that we've set aside for rail construction is funded through State of Hawaii GET and, and TAT taxes. And, uh, you know, so unless everything stops, the world stops, which, which will not happen, uh, those, those bonds will be fully repaid by the state and it's the state's contribution, you know, to the to this to this major uh, public uh, and capital uh, improvement program, pr the largest one ever for the yeah. state of Hawaii. And I want to build on that uh, a little bit because I was really upset about that. Not that I want to over respond or overreact to a downgrade in a bond rating, but the irony is, as Andy said, I know that fiscally we're in much better shape than we have been in the last couple of years. Add to that the fact that in this last year. We were able to successfully negotiate with the FTA to get them back to the table as construction partners. You know, they've not given the city any money. They've withheld that $744 million since 2017 or any allocation of that. And it actually caused the city to borrow a lot of money with expensive finance costs in order to maintain construction. So we, we brought back the FTA at the table and we got the OTAT placed uh, this year. And, and, you know, we were getting in TAT sh revenue share about $45 million. Uh, a year historically, and we got 85 million last year, and so here, and, and half of that is earmarked towards the real and real in perpetuity being paid for, as I said earlier, with tourist dollars. So we had these two infusions, if you will, into our revenue stream: the return of the FTA, and all that that signified. By the way, all that that signified—that was a really major milestone. So to get them to do that, and not only that, we were able to shorten the. The, the rail system without any financial penalty, that also was unprecedented. So we even had the benefit of that because everybody said if you change the terminus, they're gonna fine you for that, and they didn't. And so, you know, these are all economic savings really that manifest themselves and we get downgraded by them. We didn't get downgraded by the other service, but this was perplexing because it brings up, you know, opportunity for people to criticize the rail who really don't know what they're talking about, or, or for that matter, really understand the bond rating. They just see a downgrade, and that's not exactly the information we want to put out there in the community. Right now, we're trying to build back trust through our actions, our deeds, the results that we're getting, and to create hope in our community. And suddenly, a bond rating like that, when you get downgraded, 
becomes much larger than it really is. So we're just going to play through. We're in good shape. I say anything to anybody listening to this podcast. Financially, we're in good shape. So what effect, if any, would that downgrade in rating have on us? It's currently unknown because we, we get... We have two ratings, right? We have a Fitch rating and we have a Moody's rating. Fitch, Fitch has held firm, no change to their AA plus rating. So um, what we're going to have to do uh, this coming uh, season when we um, sell bonds again is to educate the public, um, really think through and think uh, strategically in terms of our investor presentation to explain why we're in fact, as Mayor said, we're in better shape today than, than we were a year ago, two years ago. So you talked about the two areas where we might face a little bit of pushback. But once that final final is accepted by council, then you can sleep? Hmm. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I didn't sleep last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just before the press conference, yeah. But no. uh, there, were, there were a lot of things going on. We um, were reviewing um, a lot of the uh, budget communication submittals to council members. And uh, we were doing it late, late at night. So our deputy uh, director, Carrie Castle, and I, we put in some late hours last. We we burned a candle last week, so that that uh, that can was why. Can I give a perspective on 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 the city and county of Honolulu? First of all, we're the eleventh largest U.S. metro, right between San Jose and Dallas, Texas. We have a million point one people. We employ over ten thousand people right now, between full time and contract workers, and we have a four and a half billion dollar budget. That is a sophisticated business by anybody's accounting. Um, you know, I think back about my friends, even where I grew up in the Boston area, you know, there's like a mayor every two miles as a small, you know, from one little town to the other. And it's a very different deal and it's a very complex situation. So Andy and his team, and really what goes on here, now I'm saying it's some 26 months into being in the mayor's office, um, is not, not an easy task to pull off. So I'm very proud of the work they did. They did excellent work. So you, like you just mentioned, you and Carrie had to, I mean, you guys deal with every single department in this city. What has this experience been like for you? Like Mayor said, the first two were very successful, but this has been a long 20 however months, you're yeah. less than him. Well, well, the first one, uh, luckily, we have a strong staff uh, in the civil uh, positions in each of our divisions within BFS. Um, there, was, there was one uh, person, uh, Kelly, Kelly Nishimura, she was um, deputy director for uh, BFS, uh, and she was she was the acting director, and she she has since moved into a uh, more permanent um, acting chief accountant role, um, or assistant chief accountant role. She she basically got me up to speed in terms of how to do a budget, the accounting aspects that relate to a budget, the fiscal activities that ensure that the you know agencies comply with their budget and all of that. So that first year, it's kind of just basically taking the water hose and drinking as much as you can. Yeah. Uh, the second cycle goes a little smoother because you know what's going on. This year, it felt a lot better because you, you understand all of the roll-ups to get, get to the finished product. And uh, understanding the details along with the, the big picture uh, plays a big role in, in terms of how we feel. So we're, we're, we're positive. We feel confident that most of the budget will be approved. And uh, we, we expect a good outcome come June. Yeah, look, one more perspective on that. Um, <laughs> you come into office in the middle of a pandemic, which was enough of a challenge, uh, and we had 60 days to balance a budget that had $400 million or so in revenue shortfall. 
and to give it a perspective, and Andy, correct me if I'm wrong on the exact number of pages, I'm going to draw back into yesterday year. Hmm. Can you remember, if you can just imagine a thick yellow page of telephone book, okay? Just imagine if you can see that in your mind. That's about the size of our budget and number of pages, almost 500 pages over there. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> and it's in right. small print. <laughs> it's line by line. I mean, and more numbers you can. So it, it is a monumental task uh, to have all of that just working. And for want of a better way to say it, keep the trains running on time. So um, no, no Herculean, really. I, I, you're absolutely right about the lack of sleep. I don't know how they've done it. It's really amazing. You keep talking about, or you keep saying the phrase, when we came into office, and that's kind of Andy's situation, too. You weren't in the city before this. You weren't in government before this. I was not, So what no. prepared you for this? Well, actually, I had good training at Ernst & Young. So part of my career was 11 years at Ernst & Young, Arthur Young, Ernst & Young. Arthur Young and Ernst & Whitney merged and became Ernst & Young. So 11 years there. But I worked three years on a state of Hawaii audit because Ernst & Young was the lead auditor state of, for state of Hawaii audit. And uh, I was on that audit as a senior and then as a manager. So that provided um, really, um, I think, good, a good background. Even though I didn't use any government accounting for 25 years, I went to Foodland for 25 years after that. Uh, but everything came back pretty quick. And again, uh, BFS has a solid team of management personnel that are civil service workers you know we have all of the divisions are staff have strong staff in management positions so the 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 learnings from them uh, uh, was um, was very effective and I think I think um, what I what I contributed was listening to them because a lot of them felt like prior administrations would not listen to them so I listened and I asked questions and um, it, they really helped to get us up to speed. And, you know, I'm just proud of all of them. They're all good people and they work hard. Yeah, well, he's underplaying it. You know, so his leadership style is absolutely on the money, aside from his business acumen, number one. And I crack up over the fact that he just kind of goes, yeah, I was at Foodland for 25 years. <laughs> yeah, I, that's how I knew Andy. Andy's role at Foodland was major, major. And that's not a small mom-and-pop operation. So he came in with somebody able to, grasp the depth and breadth, the scale of this, if you will, plus his Ernst & Young experience. So we're really, really fortunate that Andy agreed to join our team. I, I say that all the time. I say that to him all the time. He makes me call him Mr. Kawano, which, is, you know, but other than that, I'm, I'm really grateful he's here. Yeah, so am I. Andy, thank you for your time. Thank you. All right, Mayor, that was great having Andy with us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, he's brilliant. He's so, so understated. He's so modest. Um, but as I said at the end of that, I uh, was so grateful. I mean, that I, you know, we went through a transition team in selecting our cabinet members, but not Andy was the first. Mike Formby, Andy, guys I went after. And I'm so pleased that they, you know, so we didn't even expose him to the, the other things we did with the cabinet members. And uh, because I knew, I knew Andy was absolutely brilliant. And Timing is everything. It was just really a good moment in his life after 25 years at Foodland to have him join us. And, and, on a, and the other thing is, we talked about his leadership style, but he really is really well-trained that way. And I've gotten nothing but great feedback. He talked about his ability to listen to the team and the kind of people he has there, which are really brilliant in our BFS department. He was the right, the right guy at the right time. I want to move on to a blessing ceremony that was held this week for Mohala Mai. Yeah. Can you talk about that project? 
Well, you know, that's a um, it's really an incredible project because uh, the, the the fact is that we've had so many women incarcerated in our prisons for 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 nonviolent crimes. Have been highly disruptive. Most of them are mothers, uh, and they're getting released from from prison and that transition and coming back into the world and not having a it's, it's unbelievable and so this is what this is set up to do is to really facilitate a transition and providing housing and other other benefits there and care for these women who are getting out of prison so they can get back and resume their lives it's uh i have to thank governor linda lingo she she really was a champion on this um, she's that's been a, a pet peeve of hers and a project she's worked on for the last couple of years and it just so happened just as they've worked on the release of women from, from prisons, we were there to help with the housing part of it. Uh, sticking with affordable housing, last week at City Council, your managing director, Mike Formby, presented on our affordable housing projects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we keep talking about the 100 million mentioned um, earlier with Andy, who was here, um, but how much of that is going towards these projects? Are these from the last They're fiscal not, year? No. The 100 million is for some strategic acquisitions we want on a going forward basis. Mike's presentation was almost two hours at length, had everything to do with bringing the council up to speed on how much we've just gotten done in the first 26 months. There seemed to be confusion about what we were doing. And part of that we said we owned, that we didn't communicate to the council. Truth of the matter is we could do a better job of communicating, but our door has been open and we've been doing all this stuff. And as we said earlier today, when we first came into office, you know, we only had two people in a housing office in a, and they were focused on homelessness. We had to take on the challenge of affordable housing and the homeless strategy because we didn't believe in the prior homeless strategy all at the same time. And we've made some really significant inroads. So uh, what Mike talked about was to, to let them know that um, we now understand, they mentioned earlier today about understanding our role and what the city could actually do. Because wh where was the city? Where has the city been? as this housing crisis has evolved and sustained itself over such a long period of time, one can only ask themselves when you get into office like this, well, what was the city doing then? I mean, what, what's our responsibility in that? And what can we do to alleviate this condition? And that's what this was about. That's what, that's what we are about right now. So this 100 million going forward is another step forward on existing projects that we wanna be able to look at and buy strategically to help create um, more housing. I don't know what else to say. In that very same meeting, you know, in media, we call it a tease. Yeah. You teased ahead to your executive director for the Office of Housing and Homelessness. I did tease ahead to the executive director of housing. Maybe yes. you can give us the I'm name. Not, but not going to do that. What are you expecting out of this person? And what do you hope to see executed from that office? You know, when I agreed to do these podcasts with you, you said you weren't going to be that pushy. But I, <laughs> you, I like that. You I like that. <laughs> I did. Um, yeah, we have, we have um, secured that person and we are going to announce it at the. Uh, at the state of the city, more importantly, uh, they're gonna start the very next day on March 15th. And it's a welcome addition because they bring with them a lot of expertise and knowledge. And as I learned the hard way over the last couple of years, this is not a, a situation, all of us are on a steep learning curve, but this in order to be effective requires a body of knowledge that really takes a while to learn in the intricacies of it. And especially as it relates to doing things with the state. So um, we're excited about this. It's going to be a big, a big step up for us. We're really pleased that Craig Horai joined us from the state earlier. We now have him, we have him located in DPP, helping us with the private activity bonds and the 201H and some of the other more complicated issues. But honestly, this, um, this is a realm in which in order to be effective, you have to have that knowledge. It's like 
it's like hiring really good, if I can draw back to my football, really good offensive and defensive-minded coaches. It's really about that, understanding how to, how to make things happen, you know, and, and how, to, how to offset the problems or the things that present themselves. Because, you know, you would think it would be easy, but it's very complicated. To, to develop housing projects. It really is, and all that goes into it. And, and that's that's on our side. That's even talking about what the developers have to go through themselves and the actual building and whatever else. It's all teeing it up so all that can happen. So I'm excited about uh, this development. So you'll be announcing that at your yes. State of the City address. Yes. What else can we expect? Because that's just now a few days away. Yeah, it is a few days away. And I think we uh, intend uh, for the State of the City to have a number of... Um, well, one better way to say it: news stories. <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna break some a bunch of information there, and um, all designed, really, quite honestly, to um, celebrate the work of our administration at this point in time. A look ahead on what we're going to do, and and to try to build some confidence and hope in our community. That's really important for us. So, what are we going to do? Well, if you think I'm going to tell you this today, <laughs> I'm not. But I will tell you this: I. Um, I'm really proud of this team. Uh, the, the men and women that came in with us, uh, you know, they understand commitment and they understood the adversity under which we were coming in. Again, I wanna, I, I'm trying to pull so far away from COVID, but nonetheless, the reality of that and, and the hour in which they agreed to do their work and come in and the progress we've made together as we work through the pandemic, no excuses, no whining. People are problem solvers, they're committed. They understand, you know, the, None of us came in to perpetuate the status quo. They're open-minded enough to think about systemic changes. Uh, they're highly collaborative with, with each other, which is also a major breakthrough. I think historically, the city was notorious for having people in silos. And again, I'm not here to criticize the past, but this is a group that came in open-minded to collaborate, uh, also open-minded to embracing the possibilities now with the state and working together with them as well. So I'm really excited about the road ahead. I think... Um, you know, the possibilities are there and, and, and we're going to stay very open-minded and very aggressive. That's a seamless transition. Talking about collaboration with the state, you recently got to tour the Triage Center over at IHS. Yes. What was that like? Well, the Triage Center was great. It's, you know, um, first of all, we funded that. We funded it and I'm really pleased and IHS is going to run it. Uh, there's eight beds there, but it's, it's as I said, uh, one of the newscasts, you know, it's not the be-all end-all. That's certainly not to denigrate it, but it's an integral part of our efforts right now, and we need more of that. So we've got the Punawai Rest Stop to also that does, you know, medical, clinical, psychiatric evaluations. The same thing there. This is a place where we can put people in, give them the right treatments, and then try to work with transition. Um, you know, it's uh, just as it said, it's a triage center, and it's but it's in an interesting location in Evalay, right there where we've historically have had a lot of those people that people just see on the street who are down in luck, and they're. This is this is a really good development for us. I'm really proud of Connie Mitchell, but I'm also proud of us to be able to stand this up and, and, and be able to make this happen. Soon at a lot of our parks, we'll be looking at some new pickleball courts yeah. designed for pickleball, not just tennis yeah. courts that are being uh, I know. repurposed. I know, and I remember what I said last week, and I'm going to say it again. I said, you know, here we today is a joyous moment here. I'm going to announce we're going to have 65 new pickleball courts. And I can almost hear people saying, is that all? <laughs> I mean, as it is, we already, I think, manage 173 pickleball courts around the island. I mean, it's a, such a That's demand. That's a big for community. This. It's a big community. And I would tell you, <laughs> I would tell you, I found it fascinating. The 
the responses that that triggered. I mean, the pickleball crowd out there is really very got very excited about this. We got a lot of really good positive feedback, which I was pleased because you know, look, I love the fact that this is about people playing and enjoying. We've been through so much. We were talking about overcoming adversity and whatever. And this is something that helps facilitate people getting out there of all ages. The thing that's fascinating about this is it goes from kids to people even older than me um, playing the sport. And, and they all seem to love it. And so I, I have not, maybe I'm missing out on this. I've not played pickleball yet. You're a former Division One athlete. What are you doing? I, I know. Thank you. I, <laughs> I haven't done it yet. I, I, I got to bring myself out there. But I would tell you, the people who play, play it love it. I mean, I, so I'm really excited. We're able to do something for people who really love this so much and, and hopefully more to come. All right. So, uh, some other exciting news, Mary. You recently recognized the women of the Eddy. Whoa. What an epic celebration for these truly impressive women. It was an epic celebration for me personally just to meet them. I mean, really incredible world-class athletes. I think what was so great about it is that um, not only do we have the, the winner in the room, but um, – but they, you know, this is the first time here where we had so many women competing in the Eddy, and it's just a breakthrough. You know, you think about uh, this past year, we had Clarissa Moore winning the Olympic gold, first time ever. Uh, we recently conducted a ceremony where we, uh, for the first time in 106 years of the ocean safety, the city and county of Honolulu, a woman became a lieutenant. And, and now these women were in the room, um, and it was all the way down to Mahina, the young one that was in there. Uh, just an exciting moment, you know. We had uh, Clyde and Myra uh, in the room, uh, Aikau, uh, Eddie's brothers and sisters, and uh, brother, brother and sister, and it was just it was historic. I don't know how to say it. And the women were just beaming, and it was just really fun. I want to give a shout out to Councilman Matt Wire from his district out there. You want to be sure it happened, but you know, I think that they really genuinely appreciated um, not only having competed and done that well, but even that acknowledgement. It's like. Why hasn't this already happened? So it's nice to be a part of that and seeing that happen. Truly historic. All right, Mayor, this is the One Oahu podcast. So yeah. for one final thought. Well, for one final thought, I'm on the focus on the state of the city. And as we've been writing that together, I'm, again, humbled by, uh, if you look just at a year back and on what we've done, you know, um, and, and, and what's to come, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting stuff. And I feel good about that. I, I feel... I think that we're trying to live up to the responsibility we have in this office. It's not just me. This is not an individual experience. This is a shared team effort. It's a shared leadership challenge. You know, we just heard from Andy this morning, but across the board, uh, as I said earlier, the scale of the city is a complex, big place. There's lots of things going on. If I've learned anything in the last year. It's been a really, or the last couple of years, the education of that and the expertise that it takes and the commitment that it takes. So, I feel pretty good about where we are 26 months into it. I think the road ahead is even better. Mayor, thank you for your time. Thank you. And if you have a question for Mayor Rick Blangiardi, you can submit your podcast questions by heading to oneoahu.org slash podcast. And just a reminder, next week's State of the City Address is scheduled to begin at 11 a.m. You can catch it live on KGMB, K5, KHON, KITV, and Olelo Channel 54. It'll also be streamed live at hawaiinewsnow.com slash live. KITV.com slash live, KHON.com slash live, and Olelo.org slash Olelo54, as well as on the Hawaii News Now, KHON, and KITV mobile apps. I hope you join us next week for a special recap of the State of the City Address with a department that will be prominently featured in that speech, the Department of Planning and Permitting. And that's next time on the One Oahu Podcast. Until then, aloha.